one of the things that we're going to be doing in the next couple of uh, six months is we're going to be looking at ministry and mission. So I want to call your attention to uh, the church around the world. If you haven't read this or pray through this during the week, uh, there, are, there are believers that you will find fascinating because they've grown in their faith. And just like us, we want to be uh, participating with what God is doing in our context. We may not be under the persecution that some of these countries are. But nevertheless, we're all involved in the same mission. Uh, we're going to be looking today again at a couple of things that in between uh, the resurrection and the Pentecost, I've got lots to say, so I'm going to jump right in it. But if I begin by saying, You know what I mean. And it's sometimes that language, a barrier, that the words we use to communicate grace or the gospel to other people who are not believers, they will just look at us as aliens and, and they won't understand the language of Chad Africa, uh, which, which what that was. And if you don't know, if you can't decode it or understand it, you are locked out, as any language would do that. But there are certain vocabulary words in the New Testament that we don't use any longer. And I'm afraid, likewise, we'll be locked out of those special meanings. And that's why in this time, I want to jump into doing some teaching, some, some technical work, so, so that you would understand this is the language of heaven. There are some things that are going on, language that God speaks, that Paul brings to light in the, in the New Testament. And so uh, what we're going to get into is this idea that faith, firm faith, understands and speaks the language of the kingdom of heaven. And that language includes certain vocabulary. So if, if this sounds a little uh, uh, weird, it's okay. If you don't understand it, it's okay. But bear with me as we go, because I want you to know that your faith is based on some concepts that I want you to be able to communicate and if not in a technical sense to do so in a relational way that you can translate this to the friends who are non-believers like Dave your boss who's an atheist I always think about how do you connect how do you communicate so language is a very important key the last week we were talking about the meaning of the resurrection and again this is a word that we don't even speak anymore out in public with other people because it's an in-house word. And yet we don't think about how we can take this meaning out. But the question last week was, do you need to believe in the resurrection to be a Christian? And uh, of course the answer was uh, yes. And yet the word Christian is taking on a whole new connotation. It can mean anything and everything and nothing. And therefore, the last week I talked specifically about the fact that for us, that resurrection has deep meaning. And that deep meaning was locked into the justification that our Savior brings to us because He is risen. And the word baptism, that if you are baptized into Christ, if you're baptized into this relationship, you are bound by through baptism to identify with Christ in every way. And as he died, you died. As he rose, we rise. And therefore, to understand from last week 
that what Christ's resurrection did for us primarily was this big word called justification. Just as if I had never sinned. And therefore, it's a technical word. It's a legal word. We were talking about it in Sunday school. It's a declaration of a legal position. It's a courtroom word. It's a forensic word that says that the judge has declared and reckoned your account as if there is no account. The Rolls-Royce owner in London decided to drive his car across America, so he shipped his car over. He shipped his car over to New York and started touring through the U.S., and his car broke down in Kansas City. And as he, uh, the Rolls-Royce broke down, uh, he calls up London, says, uh, I've got some car trouble. The Rolls-Royce broke down. And what do I do? So they flew a mechanic from London over to Kansas City to fix his car. Fixed his car and said, this was going to cost me a pretty penny. And so the mechanic fixed the car, flew him back. And uh, expecting a bill any day, he didn't get a bill. So he called up the company says, my, my car was the one that broke down in Kansas City and you sent a mechanic out to fix it. I'm, I just want to know how much it cost and could you tell me how much I need to send to you? And the secretary said, well, just a minute, sir. And so they said, uh, we can't find any record of any car, any Rolls Royce breaking down anywhere in the world. Because there was no record, it was just as if it never happened. That's the way God thinks about you and me in our past life with our sin. We are declared just as if that sin which we had done, that sin which he had died for, does not matter and does not define or interfere any longer with our relationship with Christ. Justification is such a deep word but as you go into Paul, and Paul talks about this over and over again, it says, now if we died with Christ, now get this word, we believe, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. Death no longer has mastery over you and me, because we believe in this one who has risen from the dead. Because of the resurrection, we believe that we too will have new life and we will overcome death. Now notice it says, we believe. I want to draw your attention to that. And then Paul says in another word, another word in Romans 3, uh, 19, now we know, now we believe, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those that are uh, uh, under the law so that every mouth may be uh, closed and that the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in the sight. Now we know that. We, we possess that knowledge. We've been informed by that. But the, I wanted to draw your attention to those two verbs, believe and know, because could you switch that? Could you switch those words around to say, instead of now we know, to say now we believe? Now we believe that whatever the law says, and it fits, it fits 
knowing and believing would be the same thing. We think we could interchange and, and not even pay attention to it. But Paul goes on and, and, and pay attention to these words. Now, if we die with Christ, we know, we believe that we will also live with him. They're interchangeable for many people. And yet when you get down to the practicals, when you start to ask people what they believe and what they know, you get a whole range of response. And therefore, a lot of people have questions about what they believe because what they believe may not be what they know. And what they know may not be what they believe. And therefore, I'm going to go into this a little bit. And the questions go all over the map. For example, can a person believe and not know? Can a person know and not believe? Can I know, can I believe, can I, can I rest in the fact that what Jesus did for me was really for me? I know that Jesus died, but do I believe he died for me? That takes a different direction. Can we be sure, if you were to die today, could you be sure that you're going to be welcomed into heaven this day by the quality of your faith. In other words, if you were to die right now, would you make it into heaven? Can we be sure and know that the gospel is really true? Can you know that? Can you believe that? Can you understand that there is something, an evidence that God wants believers to have a firm faith in? Can we know that our sins are forgiven before we leave this earth? With complete assurance, knowing that when I reach death's door, I won't have to fear at all a shame and a condemnation that I didn't do enough. The regrets as we move toward that final chapter. Can I, can I really know that God and I are at peace? These are the words that we're going to get into because Paul would say, be on your guard and stand firm in your faith. Be courageous, be strong, and do everything in love. There are people who have a firm faith, and there are people who have a flimsy faith. And they just are every window doctrine, any, any impulse, they lose their faith, and they say, Pastor, can I be reborn again? Can I get rebaptized? And so by experience, there's a lot of people that don't know the difference between faith and belief. From a human perspective, just from a human perspective, listen to these words. The division between faith and reason is a half measure till it is frankly admitted that faith has to do with fiction and reason has to do with fact. You'll hear this in the world. From a human perspective, there are in effect, the Greek philosopher Hippocrates said, two things, to know and to believe one knows, to know is science, to believe one knows as ignorance. If you think you have faith, faith is related to the second. And George Bernard Shaw said this, the moment we want to believe something, isn't this true? We suddenly see all the arguments for it and become blind to the arguments against it. It's not disbelief that is dangerous to our society. It is belief. These are humans... Uh, 
who are trying to wrestle with this thing of faith and reason, which we won't go into, except to say, as George Orwell said, the point is that we're all capable of believing things which we know to be untrue. And true. But, and then, when we finally proved wrong, impudently twisting the facts so as to show that we were right, intellectually. It is, it is possible to carry out this process for an indefinite time. The only check on it is that sooner or later, false belief bumps up against the solid reality, usually on a battlefield. And therefore, when you get into this issue of what you believe and what is true and your interpretation, you have got conflict of interpretation on every side. And therefore, when you realize what people say they believe and the bias and the agendas that they have, you really are going to struggle with these things of what do you believe and what your faith is and what you really know. Well, for us as Christians and as your pastor, I don't want you to be flimsy, ungrounded, wobbly in your thinking about this faith. And I want you to be very strong and learn what the Bible talks about when it talks about faith, it's talking about not just a fictional or hope believer, uh, uh, a generalized opinion, because in this day and age, people have a belief in a higher power. And people will say, I believe God. I believe in God. And, and you know what they believe. It's just a general fact. But the word faith is the word pistis in the Greek, and it means what can be believed. It's a state of certainty. It's a certainty with regard to belief. Faith is also used to talk about a complete trust. And faith means that you can depend. There's a dependability, a trustworthiness, because you're going to put your faith in something that's solid, not just hopeful or wishful. Paul said... In Romans 3, 4, may it never be, rather that God be found true and every man be found a liar. What men say is one thing, what God says is another, and you can always trust what the Lord says. But he says, well, wait a minute. If people don't believe God, doesn't God lose his power because he doesn't agree with God or they don't uh, cooperate? I mean, God's power can be nullified because I don't believe it. Well, that gives belief a power that doesn't really exist in the New Testament. But Paul says their unbelief will not nullify the reality of the faithfulness of God. So Paul's thinking is different than just human thinking because Paul, <clears throat> Paul moves into a different realm and he speaks the realm of faith from heaven. Now, A.W. Tozer the pastor, the busy pastor in Chicago, is famous for this quote, and I remember this a long time ago. He said, it is what you believe, what comes into your mind when you think about God, it is the most important thing about you. The most important thing about you is your understanding and your concept of how you see Christ in relationship to you. The Greek military general I can't remember his name, uh, but he said, you show me your men and I will show you your gods. Because what you think about your gods will directly play out in how you live your life as men. 
and fight in the battlefield. And therefore, what you think about God is really important. And I'd say there's one more step beyond Tozer. It's not what you think about God. It's about what God thinks about you. And if you understand what God thinks about you, are you pleasing to God this day? Are you a delightful son or daughter? Are you being involved in the purposes of God? It's what God thinks about you as he sees you on earth living out your days. It's what he sees and is doing in your life that's even more important than what you believe or what you think or what you know. Therefore, there are people who have a flimsy faith and there are people who have a good understanding of what God thinks about them. Flimsy faith is faith in your interpretation. Flimsy faith starts with you. It starts with that BBS syndrome, like that belly button syndrome. I start with my belly button and I look at me. It's based on my understanding. And therefore, people say, well, I don't understand. And therefore, if I understood, I'll have faith. There are other people who say, if you have faith, then you'll understand. But flimsy faith is always conditional because it's based on your comprehension. Flimsy faith is trapped by subjectivity, experience, and feelings. It's locked into your psychological mood or your liver shivers or something is going to affect what you think. But there's always something that says, I, 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 I. And so it's always a psychological subjective and flimsy faith starts on the human level, starts with his needs and problems, and can be double-minded. Sometimes we're in, in, in Christ, and sometimes we're not. And so it's always a flimsy, fragile faith. But firm faith, on the other hand, like Abraham, he was, didn't wobble or didn't grow weak in faith, but Abraham grew strong in faith as he considered the pro- promises of God And he focused on what God was doing and what God said about him and what God understood about him. Firm faith liberates from the subjectivity that is not based on my understanding. It's based solely on what God understands. And therefore, it's anchored faith. That faith, you won't be able to pull out of that that bottom of the ocean. But it starts with God's purposes and for those who are surrendered to the will of God. Firm faith, flimsy faith. And you'll see, you work with people who are all over the map with this. So there's a range between how much people grow in faith or understand in the faith. And here's the problem. Sometimes we think that it's the strength of our faith that enables us to get things from God. It's the strength of our prayer life. It's the strength of my commitment. It's the strength. It's my strength. Instead of understanding that the reality is the strength of our God that gives us our faith. And the focus is different. Do you see that? But if you're subjective and, and personal, trying to look through your own life, you may really misunderstand everything that God is trying to do. That's why Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all the heart. Right over your head. And do not lean on your own understanding. And that's what we were trying to do. So, as we get into those words last week, we were talking, talking about what God wants us to understand about justification. 
and those, ten, those words that we're going to look at today, I want to, I want to go through quickly uh, the idea that, that Paul said, now we know, now we know, not just believe, not just think, we have a knowledge, not based on what we understand, but based on the fact that God has revealed and give us, given us an authoritative base for our faith. So we know that no one will be justified by the works of the law. We know that. We believe that. We are anchored in that. But there are some other words that when it comes to justification and the package of salvation, there's some really key words. And so let me run through some real important words. Here's a word that if you're if you're Jewish in the Old Testament, you are very familiar with this word. The word is called atonement. The festivals over and over again in the, in the Passover from the blood on the doorpost from Exodus is that there is an atonement made in the Old Testament. And the atonement occurs many times, but unusually it only occurs one time in the New Testament. The word atonement... Think it, break it down as at one meant. Gives you an idea of what the word means is that there's a reconciliation. The New Testament talks about uh, that in, in Romans 5.11 that it's the atonement that Christ, it's the only place in the New Testament in the King James it uses the word atonement. But the question is, why does God have to atone at all? Why is this why can't God just say, you guys messed up. I forgive you. Let bygones be bygones. Why is it necessary that we need an atonement? Now this is key and it's crucial. And I want you to understand this. There, there is in scripture, when it talks about the atonement, there's the problem of sin. And to understand the need for atonement, you have to understand the dynamics of sin. When the sin word of sin is used in the New Testament, it talks about three major dynamics or ways to think about sin. And the first is, it implies that there's a disconnection. There's a fallenness. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it means that there's something wrong inside, something's missing inside. We no longer walk in relationship. As Adam was kicked out of the garden, so likewise we walk independent of God. But there's a separation Two, it talks about there's a debt of sin, which we'll talk about in a moment. And the idea that there's atonement's going to take care of that debt. And there's an idea that there's a depravity. And the depravity means there's something wrong with all of us because when we're living outside of the will of God, we're going to royally miss God. Dynamics of sin. Uh, the disconnect as Isaiah talks about we not only do wrong, we encourage others to do wrong. And so let me ask you this question. Can you explain to me why smart people make mistakes? Why is it knowing what's right to do, we don't do what's right. Knowing what's wrong to do, we do what's wrong. There's something that's bent on the inside that's open to corruption and moving in directions that we shouldn't move. We know that. It's part of our nature. But the idea is that we turn everybody to their own way and we don't hold everybody accountable. You see that? 
in lots of places today. But Peter would talk about this, that there's something inside of our heart that is naturally bent to turn away from God. That we are continually straying from the shepherd and the guardian of our soul. There's that dynamic that says, I live in a state independent outside of the garden, and therefore as a fallen man in a fallen world, there's a reality that says, I don't trust God. There's a reality that says, I don't even want to trust God. And therefore, walking according to the flesh, a whole lot of people can make life work without God. I don't believe I need God. I know a lot of people like that. But the second part of sin has to talk about the debt. Now that's a strange word. When I first read the debt of our sin, when it talks about the debt, and this comes from R.C. Sproul, he was the one that helped me understand that you understand debt in two ways. Debt, a financial term, that when you talk about sin, you're talking about the wages of sin, of death. It's called a pecuniary debt where you have to pay back a recompense, and therefore it has to do with financial uh, a lot of times. But the illustration is this. Can you imagine a little boy walking into an ice cream store? He says, I want a double dipper. And so he gets the double dipper, and the guy behind the counter says, well, that'll be $2. And the little boy reaches in and says, but I've only got a dollar. My mom only gave me a dollar. He says, well, it's $2. Well, what do you do if you're the you're standing there while well, kids enjoying the ice cream? And say, well, sure, everybody's going to reach in the pot. Here, here's a dollar. And so the financial debt was paid. It's a pecuniary debt, meaning that that which was required was paid for, and the kid goes off scot-free. Now, we would do that without even thinking about it. But if that little kid came into that store, walked around the counter pushed that lady out of the way, got a double dip, and got her the cone, ran out, and I started eating on the way out without paying for anything, and ran into the police, and the, the owner said, hey, stop that kid, he just stole some ice cream. Well, that's different. That's a moral debt. It's not a financial, it's a moral debt. That he did something, he broke the law, that... It wasn't just a financial, something was, he was trying to get without conforming to the law, and therefore he broke the law, and the owner would be right to, say, arrest him, arrest the kid. Well, why is it necessary? It's because we have an inability to pay the moral law. Our inability, our counting for our own sin, if you're good at accounting, as some of you are, count it this way. If you look at sin as the omission and the commission, let's say there are things, if you're, how many times a day do you sin? We don't think about this. Of course, the Lord does. But let's say we sin three times a day. If you average that out, three times a day, 365, 1,095 cents, typo. Uh, in one year, round it off to 1,000. I'm 66 years old. If I multiply 66 times 1,000, my account would say, I've got 66,000 times saying, God, I don't care about you. I'm going to break the law. Now, for one sin, for one conflict, people get angry. 
And it doesn't take much to break a relationship. But if you do it 66,000 times, the message over and over to God is, uh, sorry, 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 sorry. And you're not really sorry. You just keep, you're in a pattern. You're in a holding pattern. And so the problem is, if you're 80 years old, you've got 80,000 sins, and you die now and you go before Christ. Now, if you stand before Christ with your account of sins, how are you going to feel going up before a holy God who can't look upon one sin and you've got 80,000 sins? How are you going to feel looking up at Jesus? Terrified. Because you know you can't pave that sin. And therefore, Satan comes out and he's going to accuse you. Not not only is he going to accuse you, he's going to accuse God. You cannot accept him, God, because if you are the righteous and holy God, you have to make him pay that moral debt. And he can't pay it, therefore you have to judge him. And Satan says, yeah, I got you now. Because if you let him off the hook, you're not a righteous God, and you can't be trusted. And Satan will accuse you then by saying, don't you agree? Didn't you do all these sins? And you say, yeah, I did. And then Jesus steps up and says, now just a minute, Father. You said that if I were to go down and I die on the cross, that I would take those 66,000, 80,000 sins, and that I would give Jerry my account, and I would take his account, and you can treat him just as if he had never sinned. And Satan says, you can't do that. You can't do that. That's not right. And God says, I can do that. I did do that in my son. And I'm justifying Jerry based on my son taking that moral debt. And my son, Jerry, is now free to come close to me. And that's what Jesus did. When Jesus died, let me ask you this question. When he died, what year was it? What year was it? Sorry. I was born in 1953. So now the question is, when Jesus died for your sins and my sins, how many sins had you committed? When Jesus died for your sins, how many of your sins had you done? None. Therefore, which sins did Jesus die for? Every single sin that you would commit in the future. Therefore, when Jesus died for your sins, when you hadn't done any of them, it's not about you. It's not about you. It's about this one who stood in your place. And he would be the high priest and he would die for every, every single sin before I became a Christian, while I am a Christian, and, and afterward lead me to heaven. Therefore, it means that my need is for someone not just to set me free from my debt, but to set me free from my pattern of sinning, that I would be liberated and go, coming back into a right relationships. And that's why grace calls the sinner out of this pattern of debt into a pattern of life. This is the word expiation. You look for exit when you go out the door, exit out of. Expiation is the technical issue of settling things. 
And Christ expiated the word sins. It means there's no longer sin in your account. But the word expiation, again, it's a technical word. Bear with me for a moment. Is different than the other word. And again, bear with me. The word is propitiation. Now, you will not use that word. Think about this word. It's only used four times. But it's a very important word. Propitiation is the emotional issue being resolved. In other words, it's not only that you did something wrong, but God was offended by what you did wrong. Expiation takes care of the offense. Expiation takes care of the crime. Expiation takes care of the debt. But propitiation takes care of the offended. Uh, It takes care of the offender. Uh, Propitiation takes care of that emotional tension that says, why you... Why did you? Propitiation removes all condemnation. Propitiation removes all fear. Propitiation says you no longer have to be ashamed. And therefore, it's like this. If I take a baseball bat and go out to your car and break it, and your windshield looks like this, you say, hey, what did you do that for? I said, don't worry. I've got got this car coming to replace your windshield and uh, I'll take care of it. So I replace your windshield. Are we good? Things are made right. Things are made right. I have paid the debt. I fixed what was wrong. But what was wrong was the relationship was not restored. Propitiation says you've taken care of my offense. You have hurt, damaged I'm no longer condemning you. Propitiation removes any wrath, fear, or judgment. Therefore, there's no condemnation. That's why justification is the word that we speak to say, my faith has set me free from being afraid of God. My justification in Christ, that my atonement is the declaration that I'm restored. And if I am restored, I have no need to fear whatsoever because now I know, I can know that I can be forgiven. I can know that his death on the cross was for me, not just for me to bring me back, but for me to bring me back to God without fear. And therefore, I can be sure that we're going to go to heaven. And we know that our sins before we leave this earth, I can really know the peace of God because of that word. Not only this, but I can also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, whom we have now received the atonement or the reconciliation. Therefore, let me just go to the end. What are the implications? Real quickly. The authority of your faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. The authority of your faith is on the basis of his death and his resurrection. The authority by what you believe and what you know is based on his word and his work. That's my authority. Two, what are the implications? I have an assurance. Our assurance is when God said, it is finished, it is over, it is done. Yay! (laughs) Praise God. I don't have to worry. And therefore, the third one is, 
our aliveness begins, our aliveness begins in our relationship with Christ when I realize that my position, my position is anchored in the baptism with Christ and the grace that God's going to respond to me, all of a sudden I start to find God enjoying me, loving me, delighting in me, leading me, making me fruitful. God's involved once again, and God is pleased with every believer who's growing in faith. And our transformation of our condition is connected to our faith and our response and surrender to the Holy Spirit. The last implication is this. God has made us ambassadors. We are the reconciled people. We are the people who know what faith means. And we know that God is going to lead us to share the message of good news with all those who are afraid of God because they've got debt and shame. But God wants to set them free. All right, let me stop there. You can take off your buckle now and we're going to call it quits. But know this, that these words are really deep. And it takes a long time to get them. We don't speak them in the church. They're almost lost language. But for you, they're the basis of your confidence and your assurance in Christ. Let's pray. Father, may your spirit take these words and sow them as seeds that would root in our hearts that Christ would strengthen us in the inner man so that we would understand all that the gospel means. Thank you that we are atoned in him, justified in him, reconciled in him, raised with him, and alive because of what you've done for us. And for that we worship you and we praise you. Now, Father, give us the wisdom and maturity as we grow in grace. For your glory and our growth we pray. Amen.